Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you're enjoying this podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Today's program is brought to you in part by the financial support of our listeners. You can support the show on a one-time basis by mailing a donation to Adam Graham, P.O. Box 15913, that's 15913, Boise, Idaho, 83715. You can also become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month at patreon.greatdetectives.net. And I want to go ahead and thank Jennifer uh, for becoming our latest Patreon supporter at the Seamus level of $4 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, Jennifer. Well, now it is time for this week's episode of Dragnet. The original air date, December the 8th, 1949, and the title is The Jade Thumb Rings. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. Fatima Cigarettes, best of long cigarettes, brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to robbery detail. $8,000 worth of Chinese jade has been stolen. The criminal is vicious. His weapon... A handful of buckshot in a handkerchief. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment... Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Monday, December 1st. It was foggy in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of robbery detail. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. It was 7.15 p.m. when we got to the police academy, the banquet room. Where do we sit, Joe? Well, Lee Jones is holding a couple seats for us someplace. You see him? Oh, yeah, yeah. There he is up there. Well, look at him. Everybody's here. Yeah, ought to be. Hi, fellas. A couple of ringside seats. Thanks, Lee. Did you get it? Yeah. Right here. Mind if I take a look at it? No, go ahead. How come you didn't get it wrapped as a gift? No time. A gift box would have been nice. No cotton, even? <sighs> Beautiful watch. Radium dial? Yeah. Universal Geneva. Fine movement. He'll like it. Look on the back. Let's see. For Chief Ed Backstrand, a good cop, detective bureau. Not very good engraving. No time. 
I didn't think the old man really meant it. Well, 26 years. You get tired after 26 years. You've been at it 25, Lee. Oh, don't look at me like that. I got a book to finish. 23 chapters. How many chapters you got, Fanny? Two. How long you been writing it? Two years. Well, at that rate, we'll be stuck with you for another 21 years. If you're lucky. <laughs> Excuse me, fellas. Gotta make a speech. All right, Lee. Proceedings underway here before we introduce the man of the hour. Like to pass along a little story you might get a kick out of. <laughs> I was driving down from Utah last year, stopped off at a hotel in Elko, Nevada. When I went up the register for my room, there was an Indian ahead of me. The clerk asked this Indian fella to sign his name, and the clerk handed him a pen. The Indian made a next on the book. Clerk looked at him for a minute and said, Say, aren't you Chief Deerskin? Haven't I seen you in the movies? The Indian nodded his head and looked a little upset. Oh, he said. Oh, we make a lot of movies in Hollywood. The clerk smiled and said, A lot of people in Alco here like to get your autograph, Chief. Then the Indian grabbed the pen up again and he said, Me no like a autograph, hunter. Me no want to be bothered. Then he drew a circle around the axe he made. The clerk said, why'd you do that, Chief? The Indian said, me no use the right name. Oh, <laughs> oh hey, Joe. Yeah, there's Rogers over his motion to where? Oh, yeah, excuse me a minute, then. Chief, who's retiring tonight, uh, he's been using his right name for 26 years, and he's proud of it. And we're proud to have been associated. You want me, Rogers? A phone for you, Joe. You can take it on the expression on Thanks, Pete. After 26 years of service, he's retiring from the Los Angeles Police Department. We're going to miss him. Gentlemen, a fine officer, Chief S. Baxter. Where's the phone? What are you? Thanks. Friday. Joe, this is Gonzalez. Yeah, Jess. Sorry to bother you, but Power said I should call you. Yeah? I need some legwork. Something big? Pretty big, yeah. Too many loose ends. Penny and I can't pull them all in. When do you want us? As soon as you can get down here. That important, huh? A man may die, Joe. Hi, Jess. Got here as soon as we could. Sorry to pull you away. Hello, Romero. Gonzalez, what's up? Come on in here. All right. Here's a report. Not complete yet. Mm -hmm. Chinese fellow. Name's George Kwan. He's a jeweler, gem cutter. Yeah. Jade expert. Knows as much about jade as anybody on the coast. Uh-huh. Says it happened at 5.30 today on Alvarado near the park. Hmm. They weren't kidding, were they? They almost killed him. Yeah. Any idea what the weapon was, Jess? I'm not sure. Looks like some sort of blackjack, something homemade. Yeah. When they picked up Kwan, they found several buckshot pellets lying around and a man's handkerchief. Ray Pinker has the stuff over in the crime lab now. Where's Quan? Have you talked to him? Got in a couple of questions down at Georgia Street while the doc was giving him sedatives. Little guy's a mess, Joe. Gonna be all right? 50-50 chance when I called you out of the academy. Well, why did they beat him? Do you resist? I don't have it all yet, but from what he said, he was jumped from behind. Didn't have a chance to fight. Whoever it was kept beating him long after he was unconscious. What'd they take him for? A couple of pieces of jade. Large ones. Very rare. Mm-hmm. You got anything else? Yeah, we got a star witness, just one. 
Did you talk to him yet? Just did for an hour and a half. You want to crack at him? Are you having trouble with him? Yeah, a little. All right, Pena. Send him in again. Yes, sir. You want to talk some more? Six years old, Joe. His name was Norman Eugene Fisher, and he was six years of age last April. Like all young boys his age, his imagination ran away with him. What would be only a minor detail to an adult witness assumed tremendous proportion to Norman's young mind. He told us his story three times. Each time he elaborated a little more until what he claimed was the truth could only have been figments of a small child's imagination. Ben and I, together with Gonzalez and Pena, talked with the boy for another hour. We were getting tired, but Norman enjoyed his position as star witness. Once more, Norman, please... Try to remember it as it really happened. It was just like I said. Let me try, Jess. Go ahead, Romero. Um, you did see it happen this afternoon, didn't you, Norman? Yes, sir, I did. Good. Now, you were on your way home from a store. Oh, no, sir. I was running away from a man. He was chasing me. But you just told us, Norman, that you were on your way home from a store. Oh, no, sir. That was yesterday. But you told us. Listen a minute, Ben. Norman, how old are you? Next year, I'm going to be 21. No, that's not right. 21, that's older than I am. Well, when I am 21, I'm going to get a hot rod. Fastest car in the world. 10,000 miles an hour. Sure you will. But how old are you now? Six, but I'm born in... But I'm going to be 21 soon. I remember when I was six years old, Norman. A lot of things I wanted. Electric train. I got one. Well, it must be something you'd like to have. One thing that maybe now that you don't have, huh? Will you give it to me? Well, if I can, what do you want? I'd like your gun. Well, what do you want a gun for? I want to put people in jail like you guys do. Sometimes it takes more than a gun, Norman. What do you mean? Just because you've got a gun doesn't mean you're a cop. Well, what does? Just a minute, son. Here you go, Norman. A good cop uses this more than a gun. Gee. It's a real police badge. It's mine. Official? Official. Can I hold it? Go ahead. It's yours. When I wear this, I'm a real detective. Well, that's part of it. The other part is to tell us what you really saw today. Now, how about it, huh? There were four men, like I said, and they all had machines. No, no, wait a minute, Norman. I thought you said you were a detective now. I am. Well, a good detective has to remember exactly what he sees, not something he makes up. It's not very scary that way. No, it's no use, Joe. He can't get his story straight. Oh, yes, I can. I'm a detective now, and I know what happened. All right, Norman, you tell us, huh? I was on my way home from the store. I saw this truck stop down the street. What did the truck look like? I don't know. It was a funny kind of truck. Had a wood back. You mean like a dump truck? Kind of, but it was a small truck. Old kind of car, like he took out the back part and put wood boards like a truck. You mean whoever owned the truck cut the back end out and made it look like a truck, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's the way it looked. Anyway, this truck stopped by this Chinese man, and the man got out, and the man started to hit this man. And the man fell on the sidewalk, and the man kept hitting him and hitting him as hard as anything. Well, what was he hitting him with? With his handkerchief. There he goes again. No, I don't know. How about that, Jess? Could tie in. Go on, Norman. Well, that's all I saw. No, no, I mean after the man hit him, what'd he do? Oh, well, he grabbed a bunch of stuff from this man's pocket, and he went into the truck and he speeded away. Norman, you're a good detective. I want you to think real hard now. Do you know what a license number is? 
Yeah. Good. Do you think you could remember the numbers on that truck? If I, if I knew what they were, I could. In school, we're just having numbers. Now, I only know up to seven, but there were two sevens in it. You're getting all this, Jess? Yeah, keep them. Norman, you've helped us a lot. Can you remember what the man on the truck looked like? He had a big head and he looked mean. All right, just one more thing now. Can you remember the color of that truck? It looked black, but the back part had black and white stripes. I don't know how you did it, Joe. Well, what do you think? How about it? Me too. All right, Norman. Your mother's waiting outside for you. You can go home now. You're a real detective. Can I wear my pouch now? You bet you can. Okay. Say. Yes, sir? As soon as I arrest somebody, will you put him in jail? With the help of an outdated police badge, no longer official, we had the statement of a six-year-old boy with a healthy imagination. We had an idea he was telling us the truth, but we had no way of being certain. Since he was the only witness, we had to accept his word and hope that he was putting us on the right track. The quickest way to make sure was to see if some of the details in little Norman Fisher's story would check out. Jess Gonzalez and Manuel Pena took the job of trying to locate a homemade pickup truck with two sevens in the license number. They started by checking all the late 3.8 forms, the vehicle theft and impound reports. The next morning, Ben and I called the general hospital and talked with Dr. Sebastian. He told us that the victim, George Kwan, had improved sufficiently to allow a brief interview. It was 10.14 a.m. when we got to Ward C, General Hospital. Doctor tells us you're a little better this morning, Mr. Kwan. Yes, sir. I shall be all right. Although it is quite painful at times. We're sorry to bother you, Mr. Kwan, but we've got to have a little more information on the robbery. Oh, I will tell you all I can, sir. I should like to recover the missing jade pieces. It is a great loss to me. Did you get any kind of a look at the man who hit you? Oh, he attacked me from behind, knocked me to the pavement. I made an attempt to get to my feet, but he struck me again and again, here at the base of my neck. You didn't see him at all, then? No, sir, I did not. Do you have any idea who could have done this? Unfortunately, no, I... I cannot think of anyone. What was stolen from you? We know it was Jade, but can you give us a more detailed description? Well, sir, I lost two thumb rings. Very rare. Collector's items. Thumb rings? How much were they worth, would you say? Well, I paid 8000 for the two rings. I wonder if you could describe them to us. Well, both rings were relics of the time when the Chinese archer drew his hunting bow with a special thumb ring. Uh-huh. Any particular identifying marks on them? Oh, uh, they both have linings of fine gold to fit them to the fingers of the new owners. Who were the new owners? I had just purchased them yesterday before I was robbed. I was on my way to San Francisco to show them to prospective buyers. Who did you buy the rings from, Mr. Kwan? Mrs. Inez Curtis, a very reputable dealer. We have done business for many years. I wonder if we could have her business address, huh? Uh, she has her office at her home. It is uh, uh, 1957 Harper Annex off Sunset Boulevard in Beverly Hills. Uh, how many people knew that you had the jade on you at that particular time yesterday? Oh, let me see. Uh, there were only two other buyers present beside Mrs. Curtis. I do not recall their names. They were new to me. Mrs. Curtis would know. Mr. Kwan, we know that you're tired. We have just one more question. Certainly. Uh, I wonder if I might trouble you to hand me that tumbler of water with the glass straw. Surely. Here you are. 
Thank you very much. You're welcome. Now, those stumblings, Mr. Kwan, would there be any practical disposition of them other than selling them as they are? Well, hardly, Sergeant. Uh, to anyone who really knows the value of jade, it would be unheard of to change them in any way. I see. Well, thank you, Mr. Kwan. We'll do our best. You know, Sergeant, we Chinese place a great sentimental value on our jade. We'll do everything we can to recover it. Thank you. Uh, may I tell you my favorite quotation on jade? Yes, sir. It is from the writings of Tong Jung Tso. He wrote, The magic powers of heaven and earth always combine to form perfect result. So the pure essences of hill and water become solidified in precious jade. Ben and I drove out to 1957 Harper Annex, the residence of Mrs. Inez Curtis. There was no one at home. We left one of our cars. It was 12.22 p.m. when we got back to Central Division. Here's a phone message for you, Joe. What's it say? Call Jess Gonzalez. He's at the Wilshire Division. Okay, thanks, Ben. Wilshire Detectives, Didion. Hi, Harry. Gonzalez around? Just a minute. Take it on three, Jess. Gonzalez. Friday, Jess. We got the truck and we got the driver. We'll be right out. Something else, Joe. Yeah? The kid was right. There were two sevens in the license number. You are listening to Dragnet for the solution to an actual case from official police files. Wilbur Rasmussen, white, male American, age 31, 5 feet 10 inches, 190 pounds, black hair, brown eyes. He was the driver of the truck. Gonzalez and Pena began by checking through all of the reports of trucks impounded during the past 24 hours. There were 23. Out of those 23, they narrowed it down to four possibilities. The third vehicle that they checked fitted the young witness's description of the holdup truck. We still could not be absolutely certain that the impounded truck was the one we were looking for. The same could be said of the driver, Wilbur Rasmussen. The net result of checking impound reports doesn't always result in the apprehension of a suspect, but in this case, we were lucky. The driver had been picked up for drunk driving. It was 1.30 p.m. when we checked in at the Wilshire Division. Hi, Jess. Where is he? You're a little late. What do you mean? He's gone, released on bail. Who furnished the bail? The woman he works for, Mrs. Inez Curtis. Well, that doesn't figure Jess, or does it? Why not? How many people knew Quan had the jade? No, that's not my guess. Quan vouches for her. He's been doing business with her for years. What do you think, Joe? It's your show. I'm just tagging along. Well, one thing's sure. Just a minute. Wilshire Detectives, Gonzalez. Oh, yeah, Pena. He did? No, meet me back here. Hmm? Friday and Romero are here. Right. The Fisher kid just identified Rasmussen's picture. The identification of Wilbur Rasmussen by six-year-old Norman Fisher was far from sufficient to take the case to court. We had to have evidence, lots of it. Rasmussen had been given a thorough shakedown, his apartment and the truck. There was no sign of the stolen jade rings. Gonzalez told us that the truck had come from the U-Drive truck rental on Figueroa Street. We checked with Mr. Crockett at U-Drive. Uh, let me have another look at that picture, boys. Yeah, here you are. Uh, what'd you say his name was? Rasmussen. Wilbur Rasmussen. 
You want to know if he rented a truck from Miss Wayne? Yesterday, maybe the day before. No, not this fellow. Never seen him. Before we left U-Drive, we checked over the rental contract on the truck in question. The deposit check for the truck was signed by Mrs. Inez Curtis. The truck was checked out at 6 a.m. The rental contract, the actual release form showing to whom the vehicle had been rented, was signed by a Harry Wilson. Rasmussen's name did not appear on any of the usual rental forms. The manager of U-Drive was positive that he had not rented a truck to Rasmussen. We drove out to 1957 Harper Annex. This time we found Mrs. Inez Curtis at home. I'm terribly sorry about Mr. Kwan. Does he have everything he needs in the hospital? Yes, ma'am. How long did you say this Harry Wilson had been working for you? Six or eight weeks. But I'm sure you're wrong about him. We're not accusing him of anything, Miss Curtis. We just won't talk to him. He certainly came to me well recommended. He was a nice man. When's the last time you saw him? Day before yesterday. He asked for his check, said he was quitting. Told him I was sorry to see him go. I'm anxious to get that guest house finished. How about Rasmussen, Miss Curtis? How long has he been with you? Wilbur's been with me for about seven months. Good worker, but he drinks too much. Feel sorry for him. You've rented trucks from the U-Drive coming right along? Oh, yes, from Mr. Crockett. We had to have a truck to haul our building supplies. I'm saving an awful lot of money contracting this myself. It's a great saving. Yes, ma'am. The deposit on this last rental, did you give that check to Wilson or to Rasmussen? I sent both of them down to pick it up. Like I say, Wilbur's been drinking rather heavily lately, and I think Harry's the better driver of the two. Do you know which one of those men was driving the truck about 5.30 in the afternoon, day before yesterday? How would I know that, Sergeant? All I know is that I sent both of them down. I told Harry to drive. Yeah, I see. Miss Curtis, were either of those men present the day you sold the jade rings to Mr. Kwan? No. They have nothing to do with my gym business, whatever. Did either of these men know about Mr. Kwan's purchase? That's possible. They knew he was here. I'm sure they saw him come in. It's entirely possible that they might have overheard something. When did Mr. Kwan leave your house? About five o'clock. What time did the two men go after the truck? Oh, they picked that up early in the morning. Mr. Crockett down at U-Drive says that only Harry Wilson checked out the truck. Says he's never seen Rasmussen before. That's entirely possible. Like I say, they might well have made other arrangements. Were there any other people present when Mr. Kwan bought that jade? Yes, there were. Two other buyers. They were bidding for the thumb rings, too. Mr. Kwan had the high bid, so I sold them to him. What if we could have their names? I certainly, I'll write them down for you. Miss Curtis, do you have any idea where we might locate Harry Wilson? He told me he was going to Mexico. Said he had friends down there. Well, thank you, Miss Curtis. You've been very helpful. Are you sure there isn't anything Mr. Kwan needs? Yes, ma'am. Two jade rings. Mrs. Inez Curtis gave us a detailed description of Harry Wilson. She also gave us the names and addresses of the two other buyers who were present when Mr. George Kwan made his purchase. We checked them out and found them to be equally as reputable as Mrs. Curtis. They could tell us nothing of the robbery. We went back to the office and got out an APB and a radiogram on Harry Wilson from the description given us by Mrs. Curtis. Stakeouts were maintained at Wilbur Rasmussen's apartment and at the home of Mrs. Inez Curtis. It was 4.30 p.m. when we got to the second floor of the old city jail building, the crime lab. Lee Jones had the evidence laid out for us. Funny thing about the handkerchief, boys. What's that, Lee? The blood stains. Old ones along with the new ones. How does that figure? We know how the new ones were made when the handkerchief was filled with buckshot and used on Quan. The old ones, hard to tell. How old would you say they were? Well, the handkerchief has been through the laundry a few times. Stains didn't come out. 
Laundry marks right here. I don't see him. Man used peerless laundry. Infrared marking system. Let me show you. Mm-hmm. Infrared lamp, please? Yeah. There's your marking. Can you trace it down? Who's it belong to? Man used the name of Harry Wilson. There was nothing to do now but wait for some word on Harry Wilson. The stakeouts continued. We requested Wilbur Rasmussen and we talked again with Mrs. Curtis and George Kwan. It was Tuesday, December the 8th. We checked in for work at 8 a.m. Morning, Jess. Hi, Joe. Where's Ben? Communications. Getting a mail. Any word on the new chief of detectives? No, nothing. What's your guess? Oh, I think Thad Brown. A good man. Maybe. Sloan's a good man, too. When you come in yet? Not yet. Why? Maybe you'd like to take a little airplane trip. What do you got? Cheyenne, Wyoming. They picked up Harry Wilson. Two days later, Thursday, December the 10th, Harry Wilson was returned to the Los Angeles County Jail and booked on suspicion of robbery. We checked with Lieutenant Frank Cunningham in the record bureau. From Wilson's fingerprints, he ran a make on him. Harry Wilson was an alias. We found out that he had lengthy records of arrests and jail terms for robbery, burglary, and grand larceny. Mr. Crockett at U-Drive identified Wilson's picture. He was a two-time loser. It's up to you, Wilson. It can go hard for you or easy. I'm in a spot, huh? You're in a spot. Lay it out for him, Jess. It's all stacked against you, Wilson. We know you rented the truck. You knew Quan was at Mrs. Curtis' house. Your handkerchief was found at the scene of the crime. You wouldn't believe me if I said I didn't do it? With that kind of evidence, how can we? I didn't. I don't know if I can prove it, but I didn't. If you didn't, we'll help you prove it. First, you gotta believe me. You know why. Yeah? I've had it twice. Once more, and I'm in for life. All right, you got it figured. Now what do you got to say? Rasmussen did it. He knocked Quan over. Where were you? Find my ticket for Cheyenne... I didn't want any part of it. How do you account for that handkerchief? It was mine, but Rasmussen had it. He got his finger one day in the job. I loaned it to him. Well, that checks. Old blood stains, new ones. All right, let's pick up Rasmussen. Oh, you're at it. Pick up the Curtis dame. She planned it. Wilbur Rasmussen was picked up and brought in. After intense cross-questioning, we confronted him with Harry Wilson's statement. In the face of this testimony, he broke completely. He gave us a full confession implicating Mrs. Inez Curtis. He admitted beating George Kwan and taking the jade thumb rings. He said he received $200 from Mrs. Curtis for the job. He requested that he be allowed to turn state's evidence. Mrs. Inez Curtis was brought to the interrogation room. Of course, you gentlemen have proof to substantiate all these accusations. Yes, ma'am, we have. It better be good. I have a fine lawyer. We've got signed and recorded confessions of Wilson and Rasmussen, the two men who worked for you. Can we play the recordings for you? That won't be necessary. Miss Curtis, you got $8,000 for those rings. Wasn't that enough? Not when I could make 16, no. Where are the rings now? I'm not going to get life for this, you know. No. Jade doesn't spoil. It'll still be good when I get out. Yeah, but you'll be too old to appreciate it, Miss Curtis. Okay, Penny. Well, that was a funny one. Sure was. How about it? Did you figure it this way, Joe? You don't expect me to answer that, do you? The story you have just heard was true. Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. On March 2nd, 1949, trial was held in Superior Court, Department 82, City and County of Los Angeles, State of California. In a moment, the results of that trial. (laughs) 
Mrs. Inez Curtis was tried and convicted of robbery and conspiracy. She received the maximum sentence as prescribed by law. In consideration for turning state's evidence, Wilbur Rasmussen received a minimum term. You have just heard Dragnet, a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of Acting Chief of Police, W.A. Wharton, Los Angeles Police Department. Dragnet honors the city of Knoxville, state of Tennessee, and the men who make up the Knoxville Police Department, another of America's great law enforcement agencies. One of these men, Sergeant Joe H. Roberts, director of the Knoxville City School Safety Patrols, who dedicates his life to making yours more secure. Fatima Cigarettes, the best of long cigarettes, has brought you Dragnet, portion transcribed from Los Angeles. Welcome back. The retirement of Ed Backstrand was an important change that solidified the feel of Dragnet that most of us know today. With Raymond Burr in the role, the character had become a major recurring part of the series and took part in the action and set the direction for a lot of cases. His role had been pared back in some recent episodes, but here he's officially retired. Uh, perhaps some listeners had contacted Dragnet to ask about him. Webb did read listener mail, and he assumed that if a letter was received, that it would uh, be representative of, I think it was a thousand or ten th- what 10,000 other people thought. But regardless, they go ahead and make it official that Ed Backstrand is no longer on the series. This would allow Friday and Romero, as well as his later partners, to exist as a double act, hopping from department to department and captain to captain, with the captain's role being somewhat more limited and detached from most day-to-day investigations. Raymond Burr had been great in the role, using the sort of commanding presence that would serve him well on radio programs like Fort Laramie and television shows like Ironside. Yet three is a crowd, and there's an economy to how Dragnet would develop. Raymond Burr would be fine with a successful career that would last right up until his death, Dragnet would, of course, also be fine with hundreds of more radio episodes and 12 seasons on television. So whatever people's personal preferences, it's hard to argue with results. And for what it's worth, Burr didn't seem to have any grudge about it as he returned for the pilot for Dragnet playing Captain Thad Brown in a story he'd originally done for radio as Ed Backstrand. The questioning of the six-year-old witness was a great scene, and it showed the challenges inherent with the job of questioning someone that young, and I loved how Friday was able to get remarkably accurate testimony from all of the crazy stuff that uh, the kid was saying. It shows how creative and patience really can pay off for the police, even if those aren't the first skills we think of. While she remained above suspicion throughout most of this, I have to say that the actual 
a lead criminal's motive was just one of the greediest and sleaziest, particularly her refusal to re reveal the location of the jade so that the rightful owner could get this piece. On the bright side, I think that definitely led to her getting a harsher sentence. The listener comments and feedback, and we have comments from the site called X regarding the episode The Mother-in-Law Murder. And uh, one listener wrote, I love the phone call sequence too, a real artifact for a 21st century electrical engineer. Another listener, Al, adds, love your podcast. And then we had a review of the episode on Good Pods by Alexis, who also rated a couple of episodes of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Well, and again, thank you to everyone who listens on Good Pods, rates episodes, and engages. That helps us over on that platform. And Alexis writes, The introduction was brilliant. Never knew the process took so much talking between operators. But the blunt way he told him, wow. And that's, of course, referencing the way that Friday informed the man he was calling that his father had been killed. I can definitely see Alexis's point, but as is always the case, I am very sympathetic to someone who comes off as awkward in an interaction. And this is something that Dragnet made clear throughout all of its iterations was probably one of the top two or three worst things about being a police officer. Behind, perhaps, dealing with the death of a brother officer, it's having to go to people and tell them that their loved one has died. And from a human being to have this job of going to a complete stranger and telling them that, it's hard to think of anything that would be more awkward in and of itself. But then you have doing it by phone. And I have to credit Sergeant Friday here because I think that lesser officers may have decided, let's go ahead and spend our time finding out the appropriate law enforcement agency in Idaho and send somebody else out to inform them in person. Let's pass off that horrible, awkward, really emotionally difficult thing that I've got to do. But Sergeant Friday did it. And I think that just imagine that it's your job to call up a complete stranger and tell them that their mother died. That's such a difficult thing to do. There is no right way to do it. Or if there is, very few of us have that skill. And if you want to throw in another factor, the department's paying for the call. And this was during a time when long-distance phone calls were a lot more expensive. You know, this isn't today with uh, unlimited long distance on all the cell phone plans. It's not even back in the 90s where it's flat rate 10 seconds a minute to anywhere in the country. These were expensive and the business office was going to look at them. So you did not want to drag this sort of call out. In addition to the emotional part of it, you've also got that, wow, this is taking so long. And you're having to listen to the whole 
rigmarole before you actually get to talk to the guy. So I, I can understand perspective. It wasn't a great interaction, but there was definitely a reason for that. And if anything, that kind of does give that scene a reason. I ragged on it a little bit that while it's great for us today, doesn't <laughs> didn't really serve any purpose in 1949. Maybe showing us that aspect of how the police have to deal with informing people that their loved ones have passed, that itself might have been purpose enough. But again, thanks so much for the review. Then we have an email from Jim who writes, The phone call scene was absolutely authentic. I worked as an operator in the mid-70s and participated in hundreds of calls exactly like that. Most of them only involved one or two operators because there were fewer and fewer manual exchanges and non-dialable numbers by then. But I remember uh, film director Sam Peckinpah as a regular customer. Jim, thanks so much for that perspective. Well, now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. And I want to go ahead and thank George. George has been one of our Patreon supporters since October 2015, currently supporting the podcast at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Thank you so much for your support, George. And that will actually do it for today. If you're enjoying the podcast, please follow us using your favorite podcast software. Be sure to rate and review the podcast wherever you download it from. We'll be back next Saturday with another episode of Dragnet. But join us back here tomorrow for our 4,300th episode special where... Old weapons are my specialty. I got some pretty rare stuff. But uh, getting back to this murder business... Oh, must we, Mr. Jenkins? Tickets, tickets. Have them ready, please. Oh, where did I put that darn thing? Tickets, please. Here you are, Conductor. Thank you. Everything okay now, miss? Oh, yes, thanks. I I was just awfully nervous about missing the train. My aunt worries, though, if I'm not on the early one. I know how it is. Well, you'll get your supper hot tonight. Here's my ticket. Thank you. Tickets. Have your tickets ready. Ah, Let's see now. Where were we? Oh, yes, the paper. Oh. Here now. First victim two months ago. Young mechanic from the Parkway filling station. Found in the reservoir, stabbed in the heart. Apparently thrown out of a car. No clues, whatever. And he was such a nice young fellow. I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram. Instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.